Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Northeast Georgia History Center's Then Again podcast. My name is Glenn, and I have a great story for you today. So given the fact that he lived most of the last part of his life in Gainesville and Hall County, it's surprising that we haven't talked about James Longstreet before, and it's, and it's really high time. A famous Civil War general and someone who has had a lot of influence, not just on our local history, but on national history as well. So why talk about James Longstreet? Isn't he just another Confederate general who betrayed his nation and deserves our scorn as a traitor to the United States? Well, as usual, the reality is much more complex than that, especially for a character as unique as Longstreet. He was a famous Civil War general, but he was much more than that. An American patriot, a brave soldier, a lifelong friend to a U.S. president, and his story after the Civil War is really more fascinating than his experiences during it. Now, full disclosure, as I said, we here at the Northeast Georgia History Center are also passionate about Longstreet, because he is a famous figure, and he spent his last years here in Gainesville, Georgia, and is buried less than a mile away from here in Alta Vista Cemetery. But that post-war story is still exceptional from a national perspective, especially for his surprisingly progressive outlook during Reconstruction, which, until very recently, severely damaged his reputation and made him the target of significant criticisms from white Southerners in general, but especially from his old comrades-in-arms. But we'll get to that. I also want to say that for our conversation, we have the privilege of having with us Mr. Richard Pilcher of the Longstreet Society, which is also located here in Gainesville, who's going to provide some insight into Longstreet's personality, history, and legacy. So who is this guy? Well, he was, of course, born James Longstreet in South Carolina in January of 1821 to James Longstreet and Mary Ann Dent. Because of his stoic, rock-like character, his father took to calling him Peter. You know, like the apostle, I shall build my church upon this rock. So his dad decided to call him Peter because he was a rock. The name stuck with him for the rest of his life. And people kept calling him Pete or, or Old Pete or such. Concerned for his education, however, his parents sent him to live with his aunt and uncle in Augusta, Georgia, when he was only nine years old and because there were several schools of quality there. Besides his schooling, which he did not excel at, he spent most of his time in Augusta outdoors, loving the rugged life and adventure that the virgin wilderness near the Savannah River provided in abundance. When he was only 16, however, his uncle, in consultation with his father, decided to send him to West Point. They had always wanted him to have a military career. Now, getting into West Point was done on the basis of congressional districts. Your congressman had to nominate you. Unfortunately, his uncle's district in Augusta had already presented its candidate, and so they had to go through Alabama and apply to West Point with an Alabama senator. Fortunately, that's where his mom had moved and lived, so they were able to, to make that work. And he did get into West Point after passing the admittance exam on the second go-around. Now, while his record at West Point was not what you would call exemplary, he made many fast friends including many who he would fight with and against in the nation's future wars. One of his closest friends, though, was a fellow named Ulysses, or Ulysses Simpson Grant. So, Richard, tell us a little bit about this friendship that came to be so influential for both men. 
Yeah, they they made it West Point. Uh, Grant was a year younger than Longstreet, but they had uh, um, some similar interests, primarily horseback riding. They they both loved riding. General Longstreet said in later years that his favorite thing to do at West Point was horseback riding and the outdoor sport of football. And we don't know exactly what that football was because we didn't play football as we know it today. But anyway, they both loved horseback riding and they, they, they rode a lot together and got to be close friends. And then uh, at their first duty assignments when they graduated and went into the Army, Longstreet was there a year soon, sooner than Grant, but uh, Longstreet had some relatives in the area, Judge Dent and his family. And uh, Judge Dent's son was also in the same unit that they were. So they got in the habit of uh, the three of them, Lieutenant Dent, Lieutenant Longstreet, and Lieutenant Grant would go out to the Dent home on, on uh, weekends or Sundays usually to get a good meal, you know, much better than an Army, Army meal. Lieutenant Grant uh, seemed to take a liking to the, the daughter in the Dent household, and Judge Dent sort of resisted that because, you know, war with Mexico was coming, and it, it was, um, you know, he didn't want his daughter marrying some young lieutenant that might get killed in a war. But after the, after the Mexican War was over, he, he gave him his approval, and uh, Grant married Longstreet Cousins. So these two men became not just friends, but related closely by marriage. But before that could happen, both men had to get through the Mexican-American War. Unfortunately, we do not have the time to get into their role in that conflict. But suffice to say that both men not only performed bravely and brilliantly, but they, like many of their former West Point classmates, learned and honed skills that would serve them in the coming war between the states. Indeed, Longstreet, serving in the 8th Infantry Regiment, seems to have been at most of the battles, including the first, Palo Alto, and the last, Chapultepec. One amusing story that Richard shares of Longstreet from years later during the Civil War gives an insight as to how calm and focused he could be when others around him might not be so clear-headed. There's a story about Chickamauga. He was having lunch with some of his staff, and they, they were all pretty rough looking by this time. And as they were having lunch, an artillery shell went off, and uh, one of the officers on his staff was eating a sweet potato. And apparently the, the blast from that artillery shell kind of jammed that sweet potato down his throat. And they knew he was in, in trouble, but I think most of the people around thought he had been shot, been hit by a shrapnel or something. And everybody gathered around trying to help him some way. General Longstreet said, y'all pull that potato out of his throat. I believe he can breathe again. And they did, and he could. So some of those things were funny in a way, and probably not so funny to the guy with the potato jammed down his throat. But uh, his, his life story is just full of odds and ends of funny little things that happened along the way. Shortly after the war in Mexico, Longstreet and Grant were married. <laughs> not to each other, Grant to Longstreet's cousin Julia, and Longstreet himself to a lady named Louise Garland. Not much is known about Longstreet's first marriage, other than it produced 10 children and ended with her death in 1889. But she must have been a truly faithful wife as she followed him to the numerous postings assigned him by the United States Army. Indeed, Unlike most of his other West Point contemporaries, Longstreet remained in the Army until 1861, when he finally resigned to join the Confederate Army. Longstreet was not a strong supporter of secession at all, but like so many Southerners felt that his allegiance lay with his home state. 
Given his extensive experience in the military, he was immediately promoted to Brigadier General by none other than Confederate President Jefferson Davis, taking command of Virginia troops near Richmond. And it was in this capacity that he led those troops in the first great battle of the war, Manassas or First Bull Run. Through a succession of commanders, including PGT Beauregard, Joseph Johnston, and finally, the famous Robert E. Lee, his abundant abilities eventually brought him to command one entire wing of the Army of Northern Virginia. He was present and commanding at practically every battle in the Eastern Theater of the War, and through a fluke of circumstance at the largest battle in the Western Theater, Chickamauga, where his leadership and a little bit of luck broke the entire Union Army in two. Though he had become, through his studies and through his practice, a proponent of something called the, quote, strategic offensive and tactical defensive, he was equally capable of both modes of combat, despite what some people who studied him later came to believe. Today's historians uh, are beginning to sort of catch on to, to what his real history was and not what the Lost Cause mythology said it was. The claim made for many years was that he was pretty good on the defense, but no good on the offense. Well, that's just not true. And, and as an example, we've got Chickamauga, where his, his corps or his wing of the army at Chickamauga broke the Union line and routed the Union army. And pretty much the same thing at Second Manassas. He was really good on the offense, too. So he was the complete general, and at the end of the war, he was considered to be the best of the battlefield commanders. Now, though he may have been considered one of the best, the cloud that hung over his reputation from 1863 until his death in 1904 was his performance at the Battle of Gettysburg. Given an order by Lee to frontally attack an exceptionally strong Union position, Longstreet at first argued against it and then carried it out with less enthusiasm than his contemporaries might have expected or wished for. This attack, popularly known as Pickett's Charge, was doomed to failure. But in later years, Longstreet, and not Lee, would be blamed for the loss of the battle, and thus in some eyes, the loss of the war. But the end of the war did eventually come after years of bloody conflict and loss with the defeat of Lee's army in 1865. Though popular memory thinks of the meeting of Grant and Lee, who did not know each other, a more poignant perspective of the story is provided by the reunion of two much closer acquaintances there at Appomattox Courthouse. They were friends for a long time, and the Civil War interrupted that, but uh, at Appomattox, Lee and Grant, their talk and their agreement was not actually the surrender. They each designated three officers to meet the next day and draw up the surrender terms, uh, something that they could all agree on. And, and so Longstreet headed to Southern Group of Three, and uh, when he went to that meeting with, with three Union officers, he ran into Grant there. Now, Longstreet was a big cigar smoker. And in that run from Richmond to Appomattox, he had been out of cigars for a, 10 days, two weeks. And he was suffering from that too. I can, I can assure you he was. He ran into Grant there and they stopped and talked uh, apparently for about half an hour. They had a long conversation. And uh, afterwards in referring to that meeting, he said, I left that meeting a happy man. He said, my friendship with Grant was restored and I had a pocket full of cigars. With the ending of the war, that pocket full of cigars, Longstreet, like every other soldier, went home to pick up the pieces of their interrupted and often broken lives. 
Unlike many of his fellow Southerners, however, Longstreet believed that the nation should be healed and come back together as one and accept the new world that Northern victory had brought. General Lee, who had become the living symbol of Southern virtue and fighting spirit, kept the rest of former Confederate leadership friendly and hospitable towards Reconstruction and amongst each other. However, upon Lee's death in 1870, forces were unleashed that began to change things, forcing Longstreet to look inside himself and begin making some important decisions. He became a Republican, the party of Lincoln and abolition, and now that of his old friend, President Grant, who also, upon being elected, appointed him to several positions, including surveyor of customs in New Orleans, and even for a time, the ambassador to Turkey. Now, these so-called accommodationist attitudes that Longstreet held infuriated his fellow Southerners, and he was immediately labeled a scalawag, a carpetbagger, and worse epithets than can be repeated here. Ending up back in Louisiana, however, he once again found himself in physical danger as he proved that his convictions were not just talk. Richards got that story and the story of how it became a pretty good thing for Gainesville. After about five years, General Lee died and General Longstreet took up the cause of equal rights. And suddenly he was no longer a Southern hero. They, they, the South really turned on him, and uh, he was pretty stubborn. He, he wasn't going to change that at all, so he continued the civil rights struggle, primarily voting rights for black men. That may sound strange to us today, but in his day, his wife couldn't vote, and, and I don't think it ever occurred to him that that was a good idea. During this time after the war, he was asked to command the Louisiana, what became the Louisiana National Guard, and, and there was an, an effort to overthrow the state government by the White League. And, and in, in, that, uh, in that struggle to, to turn the White League back and in that effort to overthrow the state government, he was, he was shot. Not seriously, but I think it sort of turned him against New Orleans and headed him on the road to move to, to Gainesville at the suggestion of his brother who lived in Cleveland. So Longstreet and his family moved to Gainesville, Georgia, and immediately begins to put down roots. The area had been predominantly anti-secession before the war, and so had much less of the vitriol present in New Orleans or Richmond. The rolling hills, forest, and beautiful countryside, I'm sure reminded him of his youth. It was just the sort of place he was looking for. He uh, found a farm over on the north side of, of Gainesville, which is right beside, right on the north side of City Park. On that farm, he, he raised uh, fruit trees, muscadine grapes, turkeys, and some other odds and ends. I think he raised some pecans maybe and things like that. But he was pretty seriously into farming as, as a gentleman farmer. You know, he didn't get out and sweat much, I don't think. But, uh, but he decided he, he'd like to have a, some other sort of a business opportunity. And uh, the railroad was coming to Gainesville. And he found a man building a hotel down here on the, about a block from the railroad station. He decided he just needed to sell out. So he sold the rest of the, the, the remaining interest in the hotel to General Longstreet. And General Longstreet finished building the hotel and uh, opened it in 1876. You know, he didn't actually manage the hotel. His uh, One of his sons was the official named manager of the hotel. Seems more and more to us today that his wife was running this hotel. But, but you know, it wasn't proper for a woman to run a business in those days. So she was kind of the stealth manager of the hotel. But uh, that's the way it seems to be to us. That was his first wife. Unfortunately, Louisa died in December of 1889, 
and earlier that year his home had burned to the ground along with all of his personal papers and possessions from his military service. He remained a widower for another six years until he married a lady named Helen Dorch. At the time, she only 34 and he 76. Helen was a remarkable woman and a good match for the general, having been an outspoken proponent of many social issues, including environmentalism and women's suffrage. General Longstreet had been following all this in the newspaper and he, he really had admired her for what, what she'd accomplished. And he asked the governor to introduce him to her and the governor did and they just hit it off. And uh, first thing you know, they're married. He was twice her age, but uh, that didn't seem to bother either one of them. So uh, they had several years together. She was there when he died. Longstreet's years in Gainesville had made him very popular with the locals, even if he was generally disliked and hated everywhere else. When he passed away on January 2nd, 1904, he was the last of the high-ranking Confederate generals to pass, and as a result, there was much pomp and circumstance to go along with his funeral. Well, the railroad ran uh, special trains up from Atlanta, which was a railroad junction because there were so many people wanting to come to the funeral. They, they did it at the courthouse, and the, it was estimated that there were around 3,000 people standing outside that couldn't get in there. And uh, then the funeral procession went out to uh, what's now Jesse Jewell to Alta Vista Cemetery, and um, it was uh, people joined the funeral. The student body of Bernal was part of the funeral procession. Other, there were other groups. There were cavalry groups from the state militia, or it may have been called a National Guard by then. I don't know. But the governor's horse guard was there, and, and there were just, just, you know, just lots of people went. The folks at Alta Vista tell me that's the most visited grave at Alta Vista, and it's easy to find. There's an American flag over it. People seem to be sort of taken aback that it's not a Confederate flag. His his family, his granddaughter, who was the last granddaughter of a Civil War general, last grandchild of a Civil War general, asked us to put that flag there because people kept telling her they couldn't find the grave. And she said, but I don't want anything but an American flag there. We consider him a great American who happened to be uh, in the Confederate Army for four years. After his passing, his family dispersed, as did his property. His gravesite continues to be visited by thousands of folks each year, and as time went by, not just Gainesvillians, but Civil War enthusiasts from everywhere who knew that this was Longstreet's final resting place wanted to find other ways to honor him and to preserve his memory. Thank goodness they did, because now we have the Longstreet Society headquartered in what remains of the Piedmont Hotel on Maple Street. And hardworking folks like Richard work every day to keep this story alive. We had formed the Longstreet Society, I think it was 26 years ago, almost 27 years ago. I think most of us knew where his hotel had been, and, and we started talking about maybe buying that property because it was on the market. So we came over one day to look at it. There were four or five of us here, and uh, Mr. Charles Ector was with us. Mr. Ector was a, a Black educator in the, in the, I think, Hall County and the Gainesville school systems. He had taught at Gainesville High School before he retired. But Mr. Hector walked over and pulled the door open on one of the buildings and looked down the hallway and he said, hey, this looks like a hotel hallway. And we all went over and looked and uh, we agreed it did. We planned to bulldoze these buildings. We, we thought they were all built much later than General Longstreet's time. But then we got kind of worried about that. And we went over to Garland Reynolds office, called Jamie Patterson, who's General Longstreet's granddaughter. And, I, and Garland put her on speakerphone and, and it was a memorable moment. He said, Jamie. Could that largest building on the hotel property 
have been a part of the hotel? She said, well, of course it is. I thought you knew that. And that literally changed our lives. We suddenly realized we couldn't tear this building down. And so uh, here we are, probably five, $600,000 later with a restored one floor of the Piedmont Hotel. We had a call last week from a lady that wanted to reserve two rooms. <laughs> you know, it was a hotel 150 years ago. It's not a hotel today. It's a museum. And we are so glad it is. So we began our podcast by asking, who was James Longstreet? Most folks think of him only as a general, and indeed one of the central attacks to discredit Longstreet came from his fellow officers for his behavior at the Battle of Gettysburg, which we briefly mentioned. Longstreet's reaction to this was to write his own memoirs titled From Manassas to Appomattox, where horror of horrors, he dared to place the blame for the loss on the venerable and untouchable Robert E. Lee. Well, if people disliked Longstreet before, they most assuredly hated him now with a white-hot passion. Why? Because, of course, Longstreet, as I said, was the paradigm of Southern virtue and gentlemanliness and was beyond reproach. And anyone who is going to cast aspersions on General Lee must be the most lowborn knave that one can imagine. Now, for this transgression, as well as his pro-Republican and pro-equality attitudes, Longstreet was for decades after his death held in very low opinion by Southerners, politicians, military strategists, and even professional historians. Even his formidable wife's own book, Lee and Longstreet at High Tide, could not stop the hate and disregard that lasted well into the 20th century. But a remarkable and unlikely series of events began in 1974 with the publishing of a historic novel by Michael Shara called Killer Angels, which 20 years later in 1993 was made into one of the most popular Civil War movies of all time, Gettysburg. The novel and the movie written with an even-handed and even sympathetic view of Longstreet, began to force not just a popular re-examination of him as military commander and social activist, but encouraged academia to begin more formal re-examinations of him as well. When you think about the social and historical environment today, where statues of Confederates are being questioned and military bases are undergoing name changes, somehow Longstreet has so far survived the scrutiny. In today's political climate, uh, about the only Confederate general you've heard of that has not been under attack has been General Longstreet. And that's because he was the only Confederate general to take up the cause of equal rights, primarily voting rights for black men. You know, the Longstreet story has been kind of messed up. The lost cause mythology is just that, a mythology. And so much of, of his story, he was not a Virginian and, and the, the lost cause crowd was basically was the Virginians. And Lost Cause theme was the Virginians were the greatest and everybody else was not so much. That damaged General Longstreet quite a bit. That plus his, his, his civil rights activities, that, that hurt his reputation in the South a lot. But, you know, it's made it sort of easy for us nowadays. I mean, you hear about statues being torn down and all, all this stuff. We haven't heard any of that. And there are only two Longstreet statues anywhere, and I've not heard any threat to either of those, and uh, he's, he's getting a little of what he's earned, finally. So, has Longstreet earned his newfound respect? Does he deserve it? For my part, I think so. Yes, he fought for the Confederacy, but his experiences and his conscience forced him to reevaluate his position on important issues. Isn't that what we're all supposed to do? 
And it seems that Longstreet, unlike so many of his Confederate contemporaries, made the right call. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We hope you have enjoyed learning just a little bit more about Longstreet. We hope it's made you think about how to place a lot of these Confederate folks in context and maybe not paint them all with as broad of a brush as, as some folks do. If you want to know more, I of course recommend reading his own memoirs from Manassas to Appomattox. If you're looking for a focus on him as a military commander, check out Jeffrey Wirtz, General James Longstreet, the Confederacy's most controversial soldier. But if you want to know more about him before and after the American Civil War, which I confess I find more interesting the more I learn about it, a local historian by the name of Gordon Sawyer has written a great book called Before Manassas and After Appomattox. Please give that a try. Thanks again for tuning in to Then Again. And until we are together again, my friends, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. This episode was narrated by our executive director, Glenn Kyle. Our guest today was Richard Pilcher of the Longstreet Society. Special thanks to our education director, Marie Bartlett, and our archives and collections manager, Leslie Jones, for their research on this episode, as well as our media producer, Guada Rodriguez, who produces our episodes. I'm Libba Beecham, director of the Cottrell Digital Studio, and I hope you enjoyed this new episode format. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram, and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.